Hello, everyone. This is Jonathan, the host and producer of the Spatial Navigator podcast, and I'd just like to wish you a very happy new year. Last year in 2022, we had over 950 total streams in over 25 countries across the 10 episodes that we published, and I thank you for joining me in this journey through the landscape of spatial biology. If you've found this podcast engaging and of good utility, please assist me in sharing it with your peers and colleagues. And now, dear friends, the first episode of 2023. Today, we speak with Dr. Ankur Sharma. Dr. Sharma's lab focuses on the oncofetal reprogramming of cancer tissue. On this episode, we discuss his fascination with evolution and these cancer cells which seemingly recall on a pre-differentiated memory, particularly in the liver. We also talk about his thoughts on the upcoming in-situ platforms and the data that he's generated from his Cosmics SMI experiment. This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. Here at Nanostring, we believe that spatial genomics is at the forefront of discovery and translational biology research. We present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share our initiatives to engage and support them. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma, for coming on to this episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about oncofetal reprogramming. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm looking forward to this interaction. Could we take maybe five minutes to talk about your journey through academia and what really inspired you to do the research that you are doing right now? That's a very interesting question. And I think someone has asked me this question first time. I think I wanted to become a scientist when I was finishing my school. I think it's partially because I was studying evolution in my school and I really loved the way evolution happens and like how these different theories of evolution came to. I knew I wanted to become a scientist, but I never knew I wanted to become a cancer biologist. I always wanted to become an evolutionary biologist. I did my undergrad and master's. My master's was in genomics. And a funny story is that for my PhD, I was applying for two programs in Indian history of science. One of them was evolutionary biology and another one was molecular biology. And I got selected in both, but at some point I decided I will work on cancer. And I think that's the reason I'm more fascinated about tumor as a evolutionary machine and the tumor ecosystem because I get to compare the ecosystem we live in and how the ecosystem tumors are. And this led me to area of single cell biology because what good system you could use to study heterogeneity of the tumor, the clonal evolution, and the difference in the ecosystem of different tumor types. And fast forward to 2020 and facial transcriptomics happened, which is one of the best way to see a tumor ecosystem and clonal evolution of the tumor. And in between, at some point of time, because of my interest in looking into evolution and comparative genomics, in 2017, we started a project where we were looking into liver cancer and the similarities and difference between normal and tumor tissue, which I think everyone does. We did a little bit different in that project. We started looking into fetal liver tissue, normal tissue and tumor tissue, which allowed us to identify certain cell types which are only present in the tumor, but they were also present in the growing fetal tissue, which made us realize that, you know, some cells in tumor microenvironment or tumor ecosystem are first present in developing organ, disappeared in homeostasis, and reappear in the cancer. And that led us to a theory of oncofetal ecosystem. And that's what the name of my lab is, oncofetal ecosystem. And currently, in the last one and a half year, when I started my independent group, my main focus is to understand this oncofetal ecosystem first in the liver cancer, where we discovered it, but now expanding it to 
other conditions such as metastasis as well as other reproductive organs and regenerative organs. But more importantly, how we can use this information to guide clinical decisions. So I think that sums up my academic journey. It was not straightforward, as you can see. Yeah, a couple of things stood out to me. I think the first is that in that experiment, you were looking at similarities between liver fetal tissue versus adult cancerous liver tissue. So I think in the genomic space, we talk about differential expression when one condition is different from the other. But in your case, you found similarities between the two and sort of like what isn't supposed to be there. Yeah, and I think I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs and what he says, everything makes sense when you start connecting dots backward. And I think discovery happened because of my interest in Compacted genomics. As I said, uh, in my master's, I was I did my master's in human genomics, and those were the early days of human genome project. I'm dating myself back, but I worked my master's was in 2006, and human genome was just launched in 2003. And I remember we used to study this compatible genomics between different model organisms, like what part of genome is shared between mouse and human, mouse and zebrafish, and I think somehow I had that recollection that, you know, there's a lot of things which are shared, and by doing comparative genomics, we could understand what is essential, what is non-essential. And we did something similar, but comparative genomics and single-cell APR, where we did single-cell atlasing of human fetal liver, or single-cell atlasing of healthy liver, and single-cell atlas of adult cancer. And then we are asking question, okay, what is present in tumor only? in terms of order, but also present in the fetal tissue. So yeah, we did not thought we will do this. It just happened because there were different tools and resources, and maybe we were at right time at right place. The other thing that struck me in that introduction was that you started with an interest in evolution, but even within like cancer, you've got the differentiation and deviation from regular programming in a much shorter temporal space, right? Yep. You know, I think that's another fascinating thing. In nature, evolution happens at a larger scale, but cancer tissue is in hurry for everything. They want to proliferate fast. And it's basically normal tissue on drugs or steroid. So evolution happens much faster. And it's a very good tool to study evolution as such and how evolution change with ecosystem or ecosystem change with evolution. So yeah, somehow back in my mind, studying evolution was always there. And tumor was a good model system to study evolution. And what some of my recent work was to look into evolution under the selection pressure of chemotherapy, because that's a big problem in the clinic, is that we have tumors which res sometimes respond to therapy, sometimes do not respond to therapy, but they do evolve under this extreme selection pressure. And that was the first work I did uh, using single-cell genomics. But I realized that in that setting, I was using a cell line model where we are studying everything from the perspective of tumor cells. But when tumor actually evolved, there's a lot of things which is happening in the ecosystem. When you give a chemotherapy, you're not only killing tumor cells, you're also killing fibroblast, immune cells. So how does your assault on the ecosystem lead to tumor evolution? And I think while chasing this question, I become interested in tumor ecosystem and ended up with oncopetal ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. I think the transcriptomic profile post-treatment is a big predictor on survivorship, especially when there's reoccurrence or relapse into future instances of cancer again. So yeah, I suppose that segues pretty decently into uh, what you find the most fascinating out of 
the Oncofito like reprogramming, as well as what is the most horrifying aspect of the change in the tumor microenvironment? Yes, I think that's a very important question. So as I said, everything happens because of evolutionary perspective. So the most horrifying thing about oncofetal reprogramming has started the most fascinating. We did not expect that the microenvironment of tumor tissue will be similar to the fetal like microenvironment. There was no reason to believe that. But what was most fascinating is that we could find some cell types which were reappearing as if it's a growing tissue. That led us to think that you know tumor tissue somehow has this memory to go back into the its early origins, which is basically growing tissue. And it can try to recreate same kind of environment, which is basically important for organ growth. If you think of a tumor, basically it's a mini organ growing inside an organ. And now it can basically recapitulate all the programs. So from where this memory comes, we don't know, but certainly there is a developmental memory. And that is the most fascinating part. And I think this is also the most horrifying part because this memory, I don't think so is for cancer development. This memory is for the regeneration of organogenesis, but cancer has its peculiar way of recalling things which are really important for wear and tear or like organ formation. And it can just basically recall all these developmental programs and lead to uncontrolled growth as well as manifestations. So I think it's a the most fascinating and most horrifying part is this recalling of memory, which tumor cells have. And we don't know what lead to this recall. And I think that's one of the main area of our research is to understand the imprint of this memory. And if we understand it, maybe we can target it. So then, in a sense, the program of that fetal state is a double-edged sword. Like one, it's great for development, but at the same time, with all this memory, it can rapidly grow, proliferate, and sort of take over normal functional tissue, right? Yeah, you are absolutely correct. And we discovered this in the setting of cancer. But if you look into our paper, we also did experiment where we looked into mouse liver regeneration. And we could form the same program of fetal-like reprogramming. And what I think, again, going to the evolutionary, nothing matters makes sense except in the light of evolution. So I think this fetal-like reprogramming is a part of evolutionary process in organ-like liver. As you know, liver is one of the very few organs in mammalian body which can regenerate. Another fascinating part of liver is some of the functional cell types of liver, such as hepatocyte, they do not proliferate in homeostasis. They only proliferate if there is a injury to the liver. And these cells proliferate. And I think that lead to this fetal-like reprogramming because it goes back into this fetal-like organogenesis state because now you are recreating that organ. And once it attains its size, it stops its growth, which means that this entire cascade of fetal-like reprogramming is gone, which tells us that basically this fetal-like reprogramming is a way of regeneration of the liver. But what happens in tumor is a mutant cell. It does not know when to stop. So it grows uncontrollably. And we can see it utilizes the same developmental memory of going back into our regenesis or fetal-like state, but it does not stop at, after attaining a particular size and it keeps on growing and then lead to the metastasis. So I think this is the theme which we have seen in a lot of other developmental pathways, such as aberration of not signaling, wind signaling, tissue beta signaling. All of these signaling processes are important for the development, but cancer aberrantly utilizes a developmental pathways which lead to havoc in body. So I think same is true for oncopetal reprogramming as well. 
Would you say then the hypothesis is that something that is regulating these programs is either removed or inhibited? Based on what you were saying about not proliferating under homeostasis, but only in damage. So then sort of like the floodgates are open even when there is no damage. Great question. In our 2020 study, we found one such molecule, VEGF. So this is a vascular growth factor, right, basically. It comes from dividing hepatocyte as one of the sources. It comes from many other sources. But dividing hepatocyte makes VEGF alpha, which binds to the VEGF receptor on the endothelial cell. Now, as I mentioned, hepatocyte only divide during regeneration, organogenesis, or cancer. So in regeneration, first this budget alpha comes, lead to this reprogramming. But once regeneration is complete, hepatocytes stop dividing, there is no budget alpha. But in cancer, this keeps on happening. So we showed this using mouse models as well as some in vitro experiments. You know, recent work, which is not published, and I cannot give you the name of the molecules, now we have found a set of 10 molecules which come from different cells, mainly from hepatocyte in a liver tissue. And it leads to the reprogramming of multiple cell types, endothelial cells, macrophage, and some other stromal cells. So this is all unpublished work. And this core set of ligand lead to the oncophytal reprogramming. And what we are hoping is that if we could target this core set of ligand, maybe we could prevent the oncophytal reprogramming. And maybe we could prevent the proliferation of these cancer tissue as well as target liver cancer. I think it is fascinating to see that there are these targets that you're trying to exploit for a pathway in to sort of block that dysregulation in signaling, right? Yep. So we've been looking at singular tumors from that point of view, but does the oncofetal programming affect migration out of the tumor? And then what effect does that have on the patient? Great question. Basically, so far, we are looking into tumor and what happens if oncofetal deprogramming does anything to the EMT or metastasis. That's a great question. Again, something which is unpublished yet. Short answer is yes. We have found there is a link between metastasis and oncofetal deprogramming. And also another fascinating area which we are working on is that when different metastatic liver cancers come to liver, what happened to the oncofetal deprogramming? And we believe that this process of oncofetal reprogramming is not only limited to the primary tumor, but it has an implication in metastasis as well as the thing which we were discussing earlier is the relapse of the patient, right? So as we know, liver cancer is one of the highly aggressive tumor. 50% of the patient who undergoes surgery, which is one of the best options because it's early stage tumor, will come back to clinic with the relapse. And what we are finding is that oncofetal deprogramming and its induced metastasis is one of the key factors in this relapse of the patient. So that's where, again, finding this key set of ligands is very important to block these signals and then perhaps prevent the relapse in liver cancer patient. Talking about cells having a memory, would that give the cell knowledge on how to evade the immune cells? So then the question is, could oncofetal reprogramming be used to avoid the immune cells? Or is that something that you see broader within regular fetal cells? That's a great question. First time when we discovered this fetal-like reprogramming of the tumor microenvironment, we realized that there is a lot of shared pattern between fetal development and cancer. One such pattern is immunosuppression. As you know, a growing fetus is 50% foreign tissue in mom's body. All the genes which are coming from dad are foreign and body should technically react against those tissue, but it does not because it suppresses the immune system. And we think the cancer cells, which lead to this fetal-like reprogramming, 
One aim is certainly organogenesis, but another aim is to suppress the immune system or in other words, let's say, fool the immune system. So these fetal-like re uh, reprogrammed cells, uh, macrophages, uh, endothelial cells, talk to these T cells and suppress these uh, T cells. What we think is it has certainly, basically, tumor is using it to suppress the immune system, but it has implication in terms of immunotherapy. Because in context of liver cancer, recently there's the immunotherapy was approved. This immunotherapy interestingly works by targeting endothelial cells, cells which brings blood to the tumor, and T cells, right? Uh, and we think that patients who have more of these fetal-like cells, which is both endothelial cells and macrophage T cells, will benefit from this immunotherapy because they have immunosuppressive microenvironment. It's very important that immunotherapy will work if you have immune cells to begin with. So in this oncofetally deprogrammed tumors, you have immune cells, they are in suppressed condition, and we think if immunotherapy is given to these patients, it will work. More importantly, we have done some preliminary analysis in our lab where patient is getting immunotherapy. So we first uh, look into the oncofetal cells in these patients and then see if patient is responding to immunotherapy or not. And initial analysis is very promising. And we think that there is a connection between patient who will respond to therapy and presence of these fetal cells. So just to clarify, it's people with greater fetal-like because that suppresses the endothelial and macrophages. So then the effect of immunotherapy is reduced because of the greater immunosuppressive environment? No, sorry, let me correct myself. Oncofetal reprogramming involves these endothelial cells and macrophages, right, which suppress the T-cell. In these patients with high oncofetal reprogramming, T-cells are in suppressed condition. Now, if immunotherapy is given to these patients, they have the T-cells, but suppressed. Well, immunotherapy will remove the suppression and patient will start responding. Right. Got it. Got it. So then it's a promising way into treating people who have these fetal-like properties. Yes. So the way I would like to put this into type patient and drive drugs. So we need to find who will respond to immunotherapy, right? Because immunotherapy is extensive, but also a lot of side effects. We think the patient with more fetal-like cells will be the best responder to the immunotherapy. So we think oncofetal reprogramming could be a biomarker to find right patient, right drug, and maybe right time when to give it a therapy. We know that tissue can be extremely heterogeneous even within an individual patient, let alone multiple patients. With the oncofetal cells, when using the spatial transcriptomics, how do they allow you to see spatial patterns? Are there discernible patterns or do you see that the cells localize to predictable areas? This is a great question, but I think I'm going to give you a long answer to this question now. So first time when we started doing spatial transcriptomics, that was 2019. And the first method we used was nanostring, this 96 panel arrays. And idea was to find these oncofetal cells. So we used nanostring 96 gene panel and added a few genes which we knew oncofetal are, like fetal-like genes, like such as PLBAP, polar 2 S1 in this panel. What it allowed us to see that co-localization of the signal of PLBAP polar to S1 in one region of interest, which um, let's say in a nanostring acid. So that was the first indication that, look, these cells could be co-localized in a tumor microenvironment. If they are co-localized, it means they are cross-talking to each other or communicating with each other. And maybe that's how they are leading to this immunosuppressive microenvironment. And as you know, uh, since then, technology has evolved. We later use uh, your CTA panel and whole transcriptomics atlas panel to get into much more finer detail of 
these cell types. So now what we are doing, we do this whole transcriptomics assay, use deconvolution approaches, and use our single cell RNA-seq uh, signature to find this PLVAP positive endothelial cells, fall out to positive macrophages, and certain stromal population, and see where these cells are sitting inside a tumor. Not only that, you could now, by using the same approach, you could see which T cells are sitting in this microenvironment, which B cells are sitting in this microenvironment. Are they making immunosuppressive genes or they are in more activated state or they are exhausted? And that all is possible because of using a spatial approach, which not only allows us to look into these cells in their spatial context, but allow us to profile them in unbiased manner, looking at all the genes. And finally, we use certain approaches such as in-situ hybridization. A recent experiment we have done with Cosmics, where we could now look into these cells at two single cell resolution, do this complex neighborhood analysis and got some really fascinating data where we could see these endothelial structures, which are PLVP positive, and these perivascular polar to positive macrophages just taking to these endothelial cells. And in this facility, very interesting stromal and T cell population. So yes, I think the short answer is now. We came to spatial transcriptomics field because we wanted to see where these cells are sitting in 2019. And in last three years, the knowledge of finding these cells has just improved significantly as the technology is improving. Could I get your thoughts when you were able to see the transcripts localized to each cell and then you were now able to have more specific cell types based on its expression profile? Because I suppose for the geomics, you could target specific populations in a location, but now you're able to see, oh, this specific T cell is in an immunosuppressive environment and it's expressing differently because of its location, right? Yeah. So again, I think our journey started with four color in-situ hybridization. Right. And those were interesting days. We had to struggle a lot, which both markers we could see because I'm a greedy person. I want to look into hepatocyte. We'll look into endothelial cells, which are fetal like and non fetal like, macrophages, which are fetal like and non fetal like, and activated and exhausted T cells. As you know, like four colors are not enough. We moved to 12 color, which is still not enough. And experiment takes a really long time. And then I think early this year, we got cosmic data which was, I would say, revolutionary because now we don't have to pick one or two or ten colors, right? There are hundreds of genes which allow us to identify the population of interest. And it not only allows us to validate where these cells are sitting, what they are talking to each other, but lead us to new discovery to see what else is sitting in this niche. Because as I was saying about ecosystem or the microenvironment, it's not only about these fetal-like cells, but what creates this fetal-like niche and what this fetal-like niche create in turn. So I think all these things now we could see with high resolution, hundreds of plaques, thousands of plaques are uh, in situ assays with cosmics. And I'm very hopeful things will get better from here. I would love to return back to this topic on how big part technology has played in getting all these discoveries. But I wanted to go back a little bit and ask you whether you could talk a little bit about the patterns you've seen in pediatric cancer and how they compare with adult cancer. I think the findings in your paper were fascinating. We think that oncopeter reprogramming may have something to do with pediatric cancer because there is a fundamental difference between pediatric cancer and adult cancer when you think about it. Pediatric cancers are highly developmentally driven because basically this is a maturation block. 
So organ is developing, and at some point of time, it, stopped, it should stop developing. But if it does not get the stop signal, it continues to grow. While in adult cancer, it is reactivation of these developmental programs. So we have seen some of the PLVAP positive cells in pediatric liver cancer, but these are very early days. And I think we need much more data to get this granularity between adult versus pediatric cancer. So we think there is some kind of Peter-like reprogramming is happening. I would not call it a reprogramming. I would call it Peter-like programs because for reprogramming, you need to first switch off and then turn on. And I think in pediatric cancer, it never switches off. While in adult cancer, it switches off and on. So I think there are a lot of interesting similarities and difference between pediatric and uh, adult cancer, but we have just started dwelling into this and it's a long way to go. Then back to the technologies, how big a part do you think has technology played in your ability to investigate all these questions? Difficult to put number, but I would say maybe 101%. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I think uh, for any discovery, there are two main reasons. One is basically observation and another is validating those observations. So we were managed to get this observation by having this unique resource of fetal liver tissue, healthy liver, and tumor tissue. But special transcriptomics has played a big role in first validating this and now expanding it. As I just mentioned, we started with 96 flex, uh, more of a ROI kind of approach. And now we have this year, a few months back, we got the data on single cell resolution segmented uh, thousand plex uh, assay. So it has played a big role in our understanding, but I think there is still a lot more to be achieved in this area. We are still talking about 1,000 flex. Maybe we could go to 10,000 flex. We could do this into multiple samples, and then we can start looking into the pattern, how the pattern change. If we go from periphery of the tumor to core of the tumor, if we go from the tumor before and after the treatment. So there's so much to be done in this area. And I think special transcriptomics has played a big role, but I think it will continue to play a big role in coming years. As you were mentioning these tissue samples that you fortunately had access to, how do you feel about all these tissue biobanks holding a lot of archival tissue of specific diseases or conditions? It seems like a lot of answers to all these diseases stand behind these doors and does that give you a, like much excitement? So I think reference atlasing is a, we call it atlasing of profiling is important. For example, my research, I would like to do two kinds of studies. One study where I want to study liver tissue from development, which is basically during fetal stage, to aging. And I want to see that how these fetal-like cells, at what time they disappear in a neonatal tissue and when they reappear, like, is it reappearing happening always in regeneration? What happened in the aging? Do we start getting this region capability less, more cancer? So I think, A, there is a longitudinal cohort which could only be generated using our archival material. But more importantly, in terms of clinical translation, I think it's very important to tap into this uh, archive material because we have tumors which are in databanks. There are tumors which have been collected since last five years, 10 years. And we know complete treatment history of these patients. We know which drug was given to this patient, how much time it took the patient to respond or not respond to this therapy, and how long patients survived after taking this drug. And I think 
there are two areas which I'm where I'm really interested in, and I think it goes back to my interest in evolution, is using spatial proctoptomics to study tumor evolution. There have been some very fascinating paper from groups that use spatial transcriptomics to study clonal evolution, not only at the copy number variation, but at single point mutation level. And I think that's a very important thing. If we understand the clonal evolution and ecosystem, how it is evolving in the patient who are getting all these different therapies in longitudinal cohort, we'll, we'll be able to understand how tumor evolves with these therapy and how that evolution eventually impacts survival of these patients. So I think these biobanks have immense potential and that's where a lot of technology which are coming on FFP tissue will be very, very important. And I think some of the technology that we have at least worked on, including nanospring, works on really old samples. So which gives me immense hope that our future is bright. Yeah, as you were talking, it seems like we're not just working on the spatial field or rather the spatial axis anymore, but it's the temporal axis too. Yes, I think spatiotemporal is the new dimension of spatial biology, studying tumor longitudinally where we can in terms of how development happens or how tumors are responding to therapy or not responding to therapy. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to close the close the episode. Thank you, Ankur, for coming onto the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. It was really fun chatting with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. If you would like to know more about Nanostring's product and panel offerings or speak to a member of our staff, please visit nanostring.com. You may also get in touch with us through LinkedIn, Instagram, or Twitter. The links to which are in the description.